Pastor Keith is down at the lake this week, and so hopefully he's getting some relaxation time, but he's also getting his uh, boat prepared because we leave for summer camp in a week. So we've got, I think, 56 students coming down to our youth camp that starts next week. So I appreciate you be praying for us as we kind of work through the last uh, few details this week. And we look forward to a, to a great week with our campers there. So as I said, we're going to be back in Matthew chapter 15. Before we go there, just want to invite you back to your childhood days, maybe, in terms of uh, the playground or the backyard. Imagine that a group of kids is, has just shown up and they're going to play football, or, or maybe it's dodgeball whichever you prefer. Those next few moments are crucial for just about every kid. Now, the two biggest kids, they're going to be team captains. But what does that mean? Everyone else is going to have to stand in a line while they get picked. And no kid wants to be the last one picked, right? And and because no one wants to be on the outside. No one wants to be the one who's left out. It just makes us uncomfortable. We, we want to be seen. We want to be accepted. We want to be liked. We want to be wanted. And this doesn't just apply to the playground or the backyard. As, as we get older, we carry some of these same insecurities with us into adulthood. Maybe it's at work where you don't seem to fit in with the rest of the team or you don't get the promotion that you're hoping for. Or maybe it's family. There's tension between you and your spouse or you and your siblings or you and your parents. You just feel like you're shut out or, or don't get along as well as the others. Unfortunately, and, and one of my concerns here this morning is that sometimes that can happen within the church as well. Where you look around and everyone seems to have a friend or a group that they fit with, except when the service is over today, you're making a beeline for the door because you don't want to be the one standing by yourself. Because you haven't found those people here in this place. You're going to avoid eye contact because you don't want to be rejected if they don't come say hello to you. Or maybe it's not people that you feel isolated from, but it's God. It's God himself. You're wondering why your prayers have gone unanswered. While the person sitting next to you, they seem to have everything go their way. You look around during worship and and you don't feel the same emotion that that person does down the way. But maybe you even wish you did. You You just don't. Maybe you feel awkward going to a Sunday school class because it seems like everyone knows so much more about the Bible than I do. And I don't know if I would fit in with that crowd. Feeling on the outside, especially when it comes to religion, can wreak havoc on your faith, leaving you feel abandoned, feel alone, maybe even questioning your relationship with God. And so if someone was to ask you this morning to describe your faith, great would not be the adjective that comes to mind. And so if that's you this morning, or you've ever felt like an outsider, especially when it comes to religion or God, I hope you will find great encouragement this morning. Because the story that we're about to look at, it's only eight verses, is a story of the ultimate outsider when it comes to a Canaanite woman's culture and religion. So if you're not there yet, Matthew 15, we're going to start in verse 21. And we're going to be introduced to a woman. She is called by Matthew a Canaanite woman. And so the parallel passage, Mark highlights her geography. She's Syro-Phoenician. 
talking about the region in which she's from, which would have been a more common vernacular for the day. But Matthew chooses to use the descriptor, a Canaanite woman. And I think that's important because of what Matthew is going to highlight about Jesus and in this interaction. Matthew highlights her heritage. She is a Canaanite. The region that she's from, Tyre and Sidon, were part of, were named as Israel comes into the promised land as places that Israel was supposed to conquer. The Canaanites are probably the, the, the most well-known thorn in the side of the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. And so Matthew chooses to describe her as this Canaanite. Israel had not finished the job that they were supposed to finish, which was clear out all of the Canaanites. And what had happened between Tyre and Sidon, they just left them up there. It was within Israel's territory, but since they never conquered that territory, they let them stay. And instead, they just avoided that region, literally like the plague. They said, oh, those are up north over there, that northwest corner, those are where the pagans live. Yeah, it's our land, and we were supposed to go take it, but we didn't, and we don't want to go up there. And so we just avoid them. They're heathens, they're pagans, they don't worship our God, but also we're comfortable down here. So they've been avoiding this area for centuries. They've left them to their pagan ways. But now we have a woman from that region. And so if you think about her relationship with religion, in particular her relationship with God's people, Israel, she couldn't be much more of an outsider. She was an unwelcome guest in Israel's territory that they didn't want to deal with, but they just ignored and avoided. She's part of this pagan culture. She's outside of the people of Israel where they were located, but she's also a woman. And in this day and time, being a woman means she was often overlooked. She was often helpless. And here, to make matters even worse, we find out that her daughter is possessed by a demon. But today, she's going to meet Jesus. Today, Jesus is going to change the trajectory of her life. Today, it's this woman, the Canaanite woman, who demonstrates a faith that God calls great. There's only two instances in which Jesus describes the faith of someone as great. And both times, they're outsiders. They're not Jews by birth. They're not from the people of Israel. They're outsiders. You have a military official, and you have this Canaanite woman. So as we walk through the story, it takes a couple of unusual turns. And, and what we find is this isn't just a story of Jesus interacting with a woman dealing with a demon. It's going to run much deeper than that. And the question that lies before us then is one that maybe you've considered or contemplate over the years. What makes faith great? Or maybe, can I have great faith? Because what we'll see in this interaction is that it's Jesus who tells this woman that she has great faith. So our outline this morning is very simple. Why is this Canaanite woman's faith great? She pursues Christ. She presses forward. She practices humility, which then leads to her reward. So that's the outline. I'll repeat them, okay? Uh, so let's walk through the story together. We'll find out why, more detail, why Jesus calls this Canaanite woman's faith great. Starting with verse 21, 22. 
And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. This may not seem like much, those two little verses, but there's something very significant that's happening here. Remember, we've already walked through briefly the beginning of Matthew chapter 15, where Jesus is in a region. These Pharisees come from far away to ask about traditions of men. And Jesus has debated over the significance of the traditions of the elders in in the Jewish ceremonial traditions that have been written and practiced over the years. And what he tells the disciples is, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles someone, but that what comes out is what matters. Since what comes out is a measure of his heart. And so Jesus, after teaching the disciples this, after offending the Pharisees, he leaves. He withdraws from the region of Israel and goes into this restricted or avoided part of Tyre and Sidon. Maybe he's looking for rest because he knows no Jew is going to follow him there. No good Pharisee is going to follow him there. I don't know. But I also believe that Jesus made this trip as a very clear object lesson about the inside-outside distinction that he had just taught the Pharisees and his disciples. The other thing that we're going to want to keep in mind as we walk through this story is that nothing happens by accident. Nothing. Nothing happens by accident. And so we're going to be puzzled maybe here in a couple of ways. The first thing we're puzzled by maybe is the fact that God allows this demon to torment this girl. Why? I thought God was good. I thought God was gracious. I thought God loved children. Why in the world would he let this girl suffering? And by the way, why does God allow any suffering at all? It doesn't seem like it meshes with his character of goodness and graciousness and and all of these things. Why isn't God just going to heal this girl immediately? Why doesn't God just stop all the evil in our world today? I mean, isn't he God? Doesn't he have all power? What we find is that this story is going to teach us a bigger lesson about how God operates And it's all part of his sovereign plan, although it may look different than what we want or even expect. But verse 22, we come to that first mark of great faith. Great faith is a faith that pursues Christ. Great faith is a faith that pursues Christ. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And so as much as I think that Jesus was on a mission to meet this woman, we don't want to overlook the pursuit of Jesus by the Canaanite woman. We've already talked about some of the numerous obstacles that she was facing. But when she heard that Jesus was in town, that Jesus was close, she knew that she had to see them. And just think, if it was your daughter or your son who was suffering, But someone told you about a cure, and the cure was on the top of a mountain. Would not you find a way to get to the top of the mountain? If it was buried at the bottom of the sea, would you not find or go through all the obstacles that you had to to find that cure? If someone put a price on that cure, would not you find a way to buy that cure? This was the pursuit of this woman. The problem was 
the cure for this girl, the cure for this woman, and I would contend the cure for me and for you, it can't be found on a mountain. It can't be found at the bottom of a sea. It can't be bought or earned because it can only be found in a person. And his name is Jesus. But this Canaanite woman seemed to understand that. She desperately pursued Christ because she knew this was a man who could help her. You can envision this desperate woman calling after Jesus, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. There's a significance in this phrase. She not only calls him Lord, which would have been a common moniker for a woman to an older man or, or any man in general, really, but she understands what what much of Israel and even the Pharisees from earlier and maybe even the disciples had missed up until this point. She calls him the son of David. That's significant because this is a messianic title. When she cries out to him, it's not just Lord, it's son of David. She's saying, Jesus, I know who you are. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one of God that has been sent to save the house of Israel. She calls out to him on the basis of who he was. I don't know how she came to that realization. I don't know what she had heard, or, but I do know that she believed it. Because she kept pursuing Christ over and over again. And sometimes this is where desperation is a good thing. It opens us up to radical solutions. It allows us to take risks that we had never considered before. It allows us to wholly focus on the problem at hand until we find a solution. And the key to this woman's desperation was that she knew where to turn when no, no one and nothing else could help. She left her family. She left her house. She left her pagan roots, her culture, her religious system. She runs to Jesus, the only one who could help her. Lesson for us is plain. If we want to have a great faith this morning, it's going to begin with the pursuit of Christ. Now, I would assume that no one is here this morning worried about your demon-oppressed daughter. But you may be feeling desperate. You may be feeling lost or on the outside. Maybe it's related to your finances or your health. Maybe it's related to your faith or your family. Maybe it's a struggle with a secret sin, a broken relationship. The key to our faith is to begin with the pursuit of Christ, acknowledging that, yes, He is Messiah. He is the Lord of creation. He is the author of salvation. He is our healer, our hope. He is the answer to our greatest need. And the good news for us today is it doesn't matter about our background or our circumstances. It doesn't matter how far away or unlikely it seems. We are still called to pursue Christ with all that we are and all that we have. And I can promise you this. The only solution to whatever problem you may be facing today or that will come tomorrow. The only solution will be found when you turn and pursue Christ with your whole heart. But it's here in the story that it takes an unusual turn. Look just at the first phrase, verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. Now this seems like the most un-Jesus thing for Jesus to do. Right? We get this picture that 
You have a desperate woman who understands who Jesus is better than the religious Pharisees of Israel. She comes, she recognizes it, she's humble, she cries out. She's not even there for herself. She's not asking for a prosperity or wealth. She's like, it's my daughter that I'm here for. And what does Jesus do? He ignores her. Doesn't say a word. And it just seems like something is, is off. It doesn't seem very Jesus-like. Keep going in verse 23. Jesus denies her word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And so we get this picture of this woman shows up to follow Jesus and ask this of Jesus, but not just one time. I don't know if maybe they're walking along and Jesus is walking and talking with his disciples. And this woman is, oh, Lord, son of David, please help me. My daughter is severely oppressed by demons. And then over and over again, so much so that the disciples are like, Jesus, you got to do something. Like, can you just like maybe heal this girl or get rid of this girl? Because, man, she's coming after us. No, she wasn't. She was coming after Jesus. But they were so annoyed and trying to get Jesus to act. And so the disciples go to Jesus. And it's here in this moment that I think back to the playground where it's getting close to the end. Maybe you, one other person, you don't want to be that last person picked. Good news is your friend is over there with the team captain. And he goes over and whispers in the ear and he's pointing at you. You're like, oh man, this is it. If this is the week that I am not going to be the last one picked because my friend is advocating for me. And so you're waiting to see what happens. And I can imagine, kind of in a similar way, this woman has been following these people and asking Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me. And then she sees the disciples stop Jesus. Jesus, look at this woman. Can't she just send her away? Is that moment I just picture her holding her breath? Is this the moment? So Jesus answers not the woman. He answers his disciples. Verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And there it is. Jesus picked someone else. She's on the outside again because she's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. And instead of answering this woman's plea, he just turns to his disciples, reiterates the mission to gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This really should have been a light bulb moment that the Pharisees had missed that he's trying to still teach in the disciples, that Jesus has already said, here's the mission, here's the point. Matthew 10.6, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He commissioned the apostles to do this mission. Israel, of all people, should be the ones recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah, that they are the ones who hold the promises of God, that God made a covenant with Abraham, their forefather. Yet it's this woman, it's this outsider, it's this Gentile woman that is pursuing Jesus in faith. But then we're left in this tension, like, well, is this it? The woman has pursued Jesus only to hear that, oh, he didn't come for her? Thankfully, for her and for us, that's not the end of the story. And it brings us to our second mark of great faith. 
So not only is great faith a faith that pursues Christ, but great faith is a faith that presses forward. The woman doesn't let Jesus' response or the disciples' response deter her. She already knows that he was the son of David. That he was the Messiah come to save the house of Israel. But Jesus hasn't sent her away yet. She, he hasn't even addressed her yet. So she still has hope. So what does she do? She presses forward, this time to the feet of Jesus. Verse 25. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. This word here, knelt, it's a Greek word, literally means just to bow down before someone. And often throughout the New Testament, it's translated as worship. And so you get this picture of she was a farther off, calling out, calling out. Disciples try to get rid of her. Jesus doesn't even address her. So now she's coming closer. And now she's kneeling down. Now she's bowing herself in front of Jesus as if to give him worship and says, Lord, help me. The idea is, have mercy on me. Lord, I need you. And then, Jesus, again, does something that seems very un-Jesus-like. Verse 26, And he answered, so now he's addressing the woman, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Did Jesus just call this woman a dog? Yeah. That didn't make the Sunday school curriculum. (laughs) It's not right to take the children's bread. As in, Jesus was sent for the house of Israel. They have promises from their father. This is what's given to the children. I can't just take it away from them and throw it to you, a dog. Now, the Jews often used uh, the term dog in a very derogatory way to describe Gentiles. It's not really the word that Jesus uses here. It's more like small domestic dog. Maybe a wealthy person might have in their house, played with the children. One commenter commented, though, is like, maybe it wasn't as bad as the Jewish insult, but you try going home and telling your wife that she looks like the cute golden retriever. See how that goes for you. Like, it may not be the worst insult, but Jesus literally just described her or equated her with a dog here. And it just seems so very un-Jesus-like that we have to keep pressing forward because remember that nothing is happening by accident that I believe Jesus clearly has a plan, and he is, yes, putting up barriers for this woman. But notice that he's not putting up barriers to push her away, but the barriers that he puts up are actually meant to draw her in, to bring out the faith of this woman. He might have even said this with a slight smile. And he says, "Ah, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. How does the woman respond? She presses forward. 27. She said, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What? She doesn't argue. We'll get there in a second. Get ahead of myself. She says, yep, you're right. I am not from the house of Israel. But even if I'm a dog... Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. This woman is pressing forward. She absorbs insults. She absorbs being ignored. She continues to press forward towards Christ. She, she takes this idea and flips it 
on its head or extends the argument of Jesus himself. And this is where we see another mark of great faith. Not only is it a faith that pursues Jesus, that presses forward, but it practices humility. There is every opportunity to get offended, to get angry, to walk away. This woman practices humility. She doesn't protest. She doesn't argue. In fact, she reaffirms her understanding that Jesus has come for Israel, accepts her title in the scenario of dog. But she takes Jesus' word. She extends that argument. Ask not, I'm not asking for the blessing that's coming for Israel, but only a crumb from God's table. And maybe she knew or heard of the promise that was given to Abraham that not only his descendants would be blessed, but the whole world would benefit from this promise through his offspring, namely Christ, whom now she was at his feet. This woman's faith was rising to the test that Jesus was giving her. She's cried out to Jesus with his messianic title. She's aware of his true identity. She's bound down, pleading for mercy. She's accepted God's divine order, bringing salvation through the Jews, but humbly submits. But there might be a crumb left for me. I don't think she was present when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, which we just spent a bulk of the spring going through. But I think she embodied some of his teachings in the early Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So if we just pause for a moment and ask the question, how do you respond when obstacles come in your path? Are you willing to press forward? Are you willing to acknowledge that God may be placing these obstacles in your way, not to push you away, but to draw out your faith, to encourage you to lean in, to press forward, even when the answer seems slow to come? How do you handle disappointments in life? Do you recognize that God is at work Will you submit to his will? Will you acknowledge that there are no accidents and that he knows what is best? God is calling us to abandon our pride, our self-reliance, self-righteousness, and to humble ourselves before him. This is the example of a Canaanite woman. She didn't demand of God. She merely appeals to the mercy of God for a crumb of his grace. Yes, there will certainly be struggles that you and I face in this life. But the question becomes, what role will your faith play as you deal with life's struggles? And so it's here that we come to the last verse, the conclusion of the story, the last mark of great faith, faith that pursues Christ, that presses forward, that practices humility. And then lastly, a great faith is a faith that promises reward. Look at verse 28. After all this, we see the Jesus moment that we've been waiting for. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Gentile woman has passed the test. She's proven her faith. Jesus commends her faith, grants her request, heals her daughter 
So here we understand a powerful, a great truth that, yes, God's plan was to bring salvation first to the house of Israel, but he responds to all who call on him in true faith. That it's not about our lineage. It's not whether or not we can directly tie ourselves back to Abraham's descendants, because as Paul says, when we place our faith in Christ, we become a child of Abraham. And in fact, we become a child of God. How does it happen? Jesus responds to all who call on him in true faith. This woman discovered what God declared to Israel in Jeremiah 29:13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. This is what the Pharisees had missed. This is what we're in danger of missing when we try to make it about anything other than our heart before Christ. When we try to put the traditions of men, when we try to put our works or our righteousness or our lineage or traditions in terms of our standing before God. God sees our heart. He rewards our heart. And so although we've come to the end of our story, we can't quite leave it there. Because it is true, Jesus rewarded the faith of this woman with exactly what she asked for. Her daughter was healed. But is healing the reward in this story? And while it's certainly a part of the reward, I don't think it's the whole story. Because there's a danger that we talked about just a few weeks ago. The moral of the story, the principle of the story cannot be, if you have enough faith, you'll get what you want. Otherwise, I'd have a brand new truck if I drive away. Never showed up. In case you were wondering, never showed up. Someone wasn't praying in faith for me. That, that is not the moral of the story. Believe enough and it will happen. So then what do we learn? Because, man, this woman got what she wants. And it's easy for this woman because she got exactly what she wants. But I've been struggling and my prayers have not been answered. I'm facing difficulties. I have faith. I believe in Jesus. Jesus isn't rewarding me with exactly what I want. What do we do? How do we handle this issue of this woman's prayer gets answered, but man, yours hasn't. Mine hasn't. Well, I think we need to understand what the reward of following Jesus really is. First, most importantly and certainly, Jesus has promised us an eternal reward that, yes, we will receive in heaven, that these blessings far surpass any any of the physical things that we know here on earth. To be honest, my tendency is to say, yeah, yeah, but what about now? Because that's part of our fallen nature. We live now. But I think when we do that, we diminish the glory of God. We didn't diminish the glory of heaven and eternity. And I would contend that if we never get anything on this earth, the knowledge that we might spend eternity with God should be enough. It should be enough to have the faith to keep the faith, even when the whole world is burning down around us, we can trust in the promises of God that we will be with him, and that is sufficient. The good news for you and me, that's not the only promise. That's not the only reward that God gives. There is a reward to be found in this life. I'm not sure he's a Christian. I don't think he actually was. There's a dude named John Ruskin. He said this, The highest reward for a man's toil 
is not what he gets for it, but what he becomes by it. And I think if we put that through the lens of Scripture, we find it to be true in the context of what Jesus does for us. Jesus has promised a great reward for following him and is available to us right now, not just when we die. He has promised us his spirit to guide us, to walk with us. He has promised us that part of a reward of dealing with this fallen world is that we are being transformed into the image of his son even now. He has promised us that trials happen not arbitrarily, but there is purpose behind them. And so when you go through a trial, sometimes the reward is endurance. Sometimes the reward is patience. Sometimes the reward is strength or wisdom. And I think we should see these things as rewards because they are conforming us to the image of Jesus. He has promised us the fruit of the Spirit as He works in our hearts. No, He has not promised me a truck. No, He has not promised everyone healing who asks for it. No, He has not promised a yes for everything that we want on this earth, but He has promised us that He has given us every spiritual blessing that we need to live on this earth that will continue with us as we commune with Him forever. And if we will view rewards in this lens, if we will view rewards not only in terms of what we gain, but who we are becoming, now it helps us keep the faith. Now we can see purpose between the trials and the circumstances because it's changing us. Because the reward is becoming more and more like Jesus. And this is what produces great faith. The lesson is not that we always get what we want. But there is significance in this story being in this scriptures and the fact that Jesus does heal. I think what we learn is that God is the rewarder of all those who seek him in faith. And this healing of this Canaanite woman points to not only that he is the God of Israel, but the God of the whole world, that he will answer the call of anyone who comes to him. And this is proof that God will fulfill and come through on all his promises. So ultimately we realize that this great faith points to God's glory. God is the one who sought this woman out, who revealed, who encouraged her faith, who healed her daughter. It's God who's proven that he is no respecter of persons, that he has come for the entire world. I know this to be true. We skip down to the end of this chapter. Jesus leaves there. He's walking along the Sea of Galilee. People are coming to him. Verse 30, great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put him at his feet, the same feet where this woman knelt and asked for mercy. They bring him, put him at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. The purpose of these miracles was not to give those people a better life. The purpose of these miracles was to point people to God. The God of Israel, who is the God of us today. And he's looking for faith that looks like this. He's looking for hearts that will respond to him. So I hope this morning that we've been encouraged by the faith of the Canaanite woman, that we will 
seek to, to live out and to display this type of great faith. You know, this woman just asked for a crumb. But she got so much more. And just like this woman, Jesus hasn't just given us a crumb. He has given us everything. Through faith in his death, his burial, his resurrection, we are called his sons and daughters. Which means that we are not the little pets that sit under the table hoping that a crumb might drop down. That we have a seat at the table with Jesus. So what Jesus calls us to in response to that great truth is a great faith. A great faith is one that pursues Christ, that presses forward, that practices humility, and yes, that promises a reward. So my prayer for us as we leave today is that we have renewed faith in who Jesus is. That we would have assurance that by faith we are his children. And that in turn, we would resolve to bring him glory. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we're thankful that this story is about so much more than just healing or casting out a demon. This is a story about who you are. This is a story about what you care about. This is a story about how you, your grace is open to all those who come to you in faith. May you help us remember that this week. May we lay aside anything that is getting in our way of worshiping you in spirit and in truth. And would you help us by the way we live our life, by the way we have this great faith, would you help us point others to who you are and what you have done for them. We pray these things in your name. Amen.